Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. encourage you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, where we have our sermon text from this morning. Last week, we began a new sermon series looking at the the topic of worship. And in our look at our our passage from Hebrews chapter 10, we saw that Christian worship that that we engage in on Sunday mornings is much more than just sort of an extended Bible study or a get together with Christian friends. It's actually an encounter with the living God in heaven as he renews his covenant relationship with us. And the natural question that follows that is, if that's what worship is, how should that reality shape what we actually do here on Sunday mornings? You see, the structure of our service, what we do here together on Sunday mornings, communicates something important. That's not just the case with our church here. Every church around there structures their service to communicate something important about who God is, and how we relate to him. And so the question is, what, does, what, what do we want to communicate here? What are we communicating in the way that we worship? And uh, so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to look at three main parts of our service and see how they all tell the beautiful story of the gospel. And it begins this week from this uh, text here in Isaiah 6, one of my favorite texts in all the Bible. And so let's listen as God speaks to us from his word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would illumine your word to us this morning. Help us to understand it. Help us to respond to it with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, for many Americans, the name Pablo Escobar is virtually synonymous with Colombia. That's unfortunate because, obviously, this country has so much more beauty and uh, wonderful things about its history than a murderous drug lord. But there's one aspect about the story of Pablo Escobar that I find very interesting. In 1982, Escobar was elected as an alternate member of the Congress here in Colombia. And he served for two years in that body 
as an alternate member of the, 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 the part of the government that makes laws. Now, I can imagine that raised a very important question for people who actually knew who he was. And that was, how did that guy get in there? How did a guy that represents lawlessness, that represents complete disrespect for the government and its laws, wind up in the very place where laws are made? The very place that symbolized law and order, this man was able to gain access to. Now, after a couple of years, he was found out and he was expelled from that body, but it raised an interesting question for, for the people that knew him. Well, if worship is truly what we said that it was last week, that it is an encounter with God in heaven, it's not too much of a stretch to think that the angels who are gathering together in worship with us here this morning could be forgiven for asking the same question about you and about me. How did he get in here? How did she get past the guards and slip into this place? I know who they are. I know their story. I know the things that they've done. They don't belong here. And in fact, that question is really the big question that the story of the Bible seeks to answer. After Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden in the presence of God, the rest of the Bible tells the story that is designed to answer this question. How can human beings ever hope to be welcomed back into the presence of God to worship and commune with Him. And our text this morning gives us a very compact and memorable account from the life of Isaiah that seeks to answer that question. And in this passage, there are three main movements that represent three main movements in the first part of our service, and also the three main movements that you and I need to make in our own souls, in our, in our own hearts, as we come before the Lord and worship in His presence. And I want to give you three words that describe those three movements this morning. Glory, trauma, and atonement. Glory, trauma, and atonement. That's where we're headed this morning. So let's look at each of those. Glory. The first truth that we need to reckon with when we come into the presence of God and worship is the fact that He is glorious. What does that mean? The, the word in Hebrew that's, that's often translated as glory in English means weighty. In other words, it means it's, it's important. It is consequential. If you compared God to anything else, He would weigh something and everything else would be like smoke or like air that doesn't weigh anything next to, uh, compared to God. Let's look at our story. We're not told exactly how this happens, but suddenly Isaiah finds himself in the presence of God, in his temple. And it isn't as if Isaiah traveled to Jerusalem to go to the temple. No, God breaks into his world into the, and pulls him into the real temple. This is, God initiates this encounter with Isaiah. And Isaiah describes what he sees. He sees the Lord on a throne with the train of his robe filling up this heavenly temple. You see, Israel's king, who had reigned for 52 years, had just died. And so there was likely anxiety among the people. Who is it that's going to rule us now? Who's in charge? And then it says, as if the Lord breaks into Isaiah's world and says, I'm still on the throne. I'm still in charge. And that, that contributes to this, this picture of glory that he has. Even his place 
with relationship to Isaiah communicates this glory. He says he is high and lifted up. Isaiah isn't looking down at this uh, at his feet. This is it's as if it's fallen on top of him, and he's looking up at it to communicate God's glory. And above the Lord, he sees these heavenly beings, who he calls the seraphim. This is the only place in the Bible that these beings appear. And they are built to be in the presence of God's glory. They are especially equipped to do this job. They have these three sets of wings that he describes. Uh, two they fly with, makes sense. But then the, other, the one other set they use is to cover their face. It's as if these angels, who are built to be in the presence of God's glory, can't even look at God's glory. With the other set of wings, they cover their feet. Why do they cover their feet? Well, feet are signs of creatureliness. They're signs of finitude. You only need feet if you stand on the ground. And so what they do in the God's presence is as if they want to shield their creatureliness before the Creator. He's that glorious. But he doesn't just see the Lord's glory. He hears it as he hears these angels like this eternal choir calling back and forth to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. It's not a place that you can go where you don't see and aren't faced with the glory of God because God made everything. His signature is on all of it. And so we see His weight and His power and His glory. And it's as if glory draws attention and it draws uh, people to listen and to take notice and to pay attention because He's that important. Our family got a small taste of this, uh, of this glory uh, a few years ago. I took uh, my two boys to New Orleans and, uh, for Ryan's birthday. And one of the things that we had on the, on the itinerary was to go watch the New Orleans Pelicans play the Golden State Warriors who were in town to play basketball. And uh, I picked a random hotel, some place that was going to be near the stadium. And uh, we went out during the day and walked around. And as we were coming back to our hotel around early afternoon, we see this big bus parked in front of our hotel a bunch of people wearing Golden State Warriors uh, uh, stuff. I thought, is it possible that I happen to pick the very hotel that the Golden State Warriors are staying in? So I go and I ask the bellhop, hey, uh, are the Warriors staying here? And he's like, no comments. And I'm like, yeah, all right, good deal. Now I know. So we hung around the lobby. We knew it was about practice time. And it was just me and uh, a couple other people, two other boys around our boys' ages. And all of a sudden, into the room walks Steph Curry. You can see my boy's eyes just go, mouths drop to the floor. And it's as if the entire room got tense and looked and like, there he is in the flesh. And he came over and he signed some autographs, said hi, patted people on the back as he walked out to go to practice. That's importance. Steph Curry's just a man. The man that can shoot 42% from downtown. But he's still just a man. If he can pull that weight of glory, how much more can the Lord, who is, who is glorious, demand our attention? Every Sunday when we come into worship, we begin with a call to worship. Because just like he did for Isaiah, God initiates our relationship with him. We don't go looking for him. He comes looking for us. He breaks into our world and calls us out to himself. In fact, the word church means called out one. As if God, even in that word, it communicates God's initiative. And some of you are here this morning 
not because you went looking for God, or you woke up one day and thought, you know what, I should go find God, but because you heard something, some voice inside you that said, you have to come. You have to come. You need to see that there's more to life than what you're doing. You need to see that there's something bigger and more, and more worth living for than what you are living for right now. So come, and you're here because you came. You responded to that call. We begin after the call to worship, focusing on some aspect of God's glory and His greatness. He's infinite, He's eternal, He's unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And we want to communicate that right from the beginning. We read His law because that's a reflection of His, his holy character. And so friends, in order to worship God, we need to reckon first with His glory. We need to reckon with the weight of His glory. To worship means to ascribe worth to something. And if we don't believe that God is worth our worship, then we can't worship Him. Do you know God's glory? Is He the weightiest thing in your life? Or is there some other voice, some other thing that demands your attention, that calls out to you, that, that, you, that you feel like you have to listen to? Relationships, your career, whatever it is. Or is God's glory the weightiest thing? in your life. That's the first movement in worship, is reckoning with God's glory. And the second movement has to do with our response to God's glory, which can actually be described with the word trauma. Trauma. You, can't, you didn't come to church to get traumatized, but guess what? That's what happens. Look at, uh, Isaiah describes what happens when he enters, uh, when he encounters God's glory. He says, the foundations of the building begin to shake like an earthquake. And not because God is physically shaking them with his hands or something like that. He says, the voice of the Lord, the voice of him who called is the one that shook it. Robert read from Psalm 29 where it says, the voice of the Lord shook the wilderness. The voice of the Lord shakes the, shakes the, uh, uh, shakes the mountains and shakes the trees. The, the, the voice of the Lord is powerful. Smoke fills up the temple. The priests used to use uh, incense in the, in the copy of the heavenly places to symbolize God's presence of His Spirit. But remember, Isaiah's in the real thing, and so it fills up with smoke. And then Isaiah, he tells us what he says in verse 5. He says, Woe is me. Woe is me. If you're from California, this isn't like, Woe, Lord. No, woe is, is this, uh, this um, archaic word that means great distress or sorrow. Isaiah has been proclaiming these woes on all these uh, nations in the passages before this. And now he says, not woe is Assyria, not woe is Babylon, not woe is Samaria, but woe is me. I'm lost. I'm undone. I'm finished. Why does he feel that way? He says, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why is lips? Well, Jesus says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, Speaks And so when Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, he's saying that uh, he's really using the lips as a, as a symbol for his whole self. He's saying, my, my whole self, everything about me is lost and coming undone. And so when Isaiah examines himself in light of God's glory, there's only one conclusion that he comes to, and that is, I shouldn't be here. Without some intervention, I am in deep, deep trouble. Isaiah is traumatized by the glory of God. 
So every Sunday after hearing about God's glory and singing about God's glory, we move to the only appropriate response, and that is the confession of our unworthiness to be in the presence of God. And you might think, well, that's kind of a downer. I've come to church really to kind of get lifted up. Why do I have to talk about sin and talk about you know confession and, uh, and all of that? Well, but it's because if we don't, if we don't acknowledge some way, in some way that we need God's grace, then we haven't really grappled with the fact that, that God is glorious. Here at UCB, we often use a pre-written confession uh, that we recite together in addition to our time of silent personal confession. Why do we do that? Well, because oftentimes we struggle to even come up with the words that we need to say in God's presence to, to really capture what it means to be traumatized by His holiness and His glory. Uh, most of us would probably not use words like miserable offenders or lost sheep or helpless to describe ourselves. But those words capture biblical truth and then put those words in our mouth to say things about ourselves that we wouldn't naturally say. And we repeat them fairly often, not because we're lazy, not because we can't find anything else to say and it just it works, but we repeat them because sometimes it takes repeating something for uh, for uh, a number of times before we can really begin to reflect on what it actually means. And so that's why we do that. And, we, we, and the purpose is to ultimately move your heart to humility and confession before the Lord. One of the parts of our confession uh, of sin that always catches me is when we say together, we have left undone those things which we ought to have done. Uh, uh, sometimes I think, well, you know, I didn't do anything particularly heinous this week, nothing that I should be arrested for or anything like that, thankfully. But uh, So what am I supposed to confess? But that line helps you out, doesn't it? It says, think of all the things that you could have done, that you should have done, that you didn't do. All the phone calls you could have made, the prayers you should have prayed, the good deeds you should have done. God doesn't tell us just to avoid evil. He calls us to do good, and so... That really should lead us to being able to say with Isaiah, woe is me, Lord, I'm undone in your presence. Have you experienced that in your own heart, in your own life? Have you acknowledged that you are undone in God's presence, just like Isaiah? Or maybe are you defensive about sin? Do you say, well, I don't really need to apologize for that. It's, my problems are somebody else's fault and somebody else's responsibility. Has God shaken the foundations of your life in such a way that you are brought to your knees in confession? Friends, if so, then you know you are on the way to knowing what it is to worship God. But thankfully, God does not leave us in our trauma. He doesn't leave us there. There's a movement that follows confession that ultimately answers the question, how can people like you and me ever hope to be in the presence of God? And it's summed up with the word, in verses 6 and 7, one of the seraphim takes a burning coal out of the altar where the sacrifices would have been offered, and he touches Isaiah's lips, the very place on his body that he had identified as being unclean and that he needed in order to be a faithful prophet for God. God comes and touches that with this burning coal. And then he says, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. To atone comes from a verb that means to cover up. Here we see God again taking the initiative, 
covering up Isaiah's sin, taking away the guilt that was the source of his trauma so that he could stand in God's presence with confidence in the Holy Place. Friends, this is a foreshadowing, of course, of what God would do through Jesus some 800 years later. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, not on the altar at the temple in Jerusalem, but in the heavenly altar. Offered himself as a sacrifice for traumatized sinners like you and me. And his blood covers our sin and takes away our guilt. And each Sunday when Andrew or I stand up here and we read some portion of God's word to assure you that your sins are forgiven, God wants you to hear not just our voices, but his voice as he speaks to you to assure you that no matter how you've blown it this week, no matter how far from God you feel, no matter how undone your life feels, no matter how all the ways that you've fallen and failed and forgotten God's promises, that God's mercy is deeper, that Christ's blood is stronger, and that now he welcomes you into his presence with great joy. Sometimes we feel as if God sort of tolerates our presence here in worship. I guess you can come in. No. God welcomes us with great joy. Friends, every one of us has come into this place with a different story. Some of you may uh, be completely new to the Christian faith. And you are here in church for the first time. Some of you may be returning after a long hiatus. Some of you grew up in the church and worship feels really familiar to you. So for some of you, this is really strange. Some of you have come out of really dark places, dark places you can't even admit to the people who are closest to you. Others have always been careful to follow the rules, and to do what's right. Some of you come here knowing God and wanting more of Him. Others are skeptical about God or what you've been told about God in your past. Some of you burn with passion for the Lord. Others of you guys are bored and you're saying, finish up, Pastor. My parents dragged me here and I need to get on with my day. Some of you are convinced, while others of you may have really hard questions. But here's the beautiful thing about Christian worship. That no matter the particulars of our individual stories and situations, the story that we step into week after week, that's retold again and again, through the structure even of our worship service, is that of God's glory, the trauma of our sin, and the amazing grace of His forgiveness is a story with which every one of us can identify. Your trauma looks different than mine. It looks different from the person sitting next to you. But all of us can say the only reason that we can step into the presence of God is because God has covered our sin through Jesus and has equipped us to be here. And so how did you get in here? How did you slip past the guard and get into the heavenly places? What gives you the right to stand here in the presence of God and to worship Him and to commune at His table and to hear His word? Well, all of us have the same confession, and that is the only reason that we can be here, the only reason that we can be confident is because Jesus has come down with that glowing coal and burned our life and been satisfied for our sins, taken away our guilt, and covered us with his gift. And so, friends, may that inspire our worship. Every Sunday as we come before worship before the Lord, may we be reminded of that story. And friends, let us worship God because of his sacrifice for us in Jesus. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you that you have qualified us to be here. That we don't come in on our own merits and that our own demerits don't even keep us away from your presence, but that you have qualified us to be here by the sacrifice of Jesus and by the gift of his righteousness that qualifies us to be in your presence. Lord, may we never take that for granted. May we always come into your presence with great humility and great joy. And may you remind us of that every week as we gather before you in worship. Hear our worship now as we, as we sing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.